This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to Leadership Stories, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the intersection of leadership and public service. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. For over the last two decades, the IBM Center has led the charge of connecting research with practice, advancing public management scholarship while providing leaders with practical insights and actionable recommendations on how to enhance the way government does its business. Since its inception, the center has always complemented its rigorous public management research by offering government executives a platform for telling their leadership stories on its weekly interview program, The Business of Government Hour. These conversations inform the center's research agenda, as well as enable us to get the research to those on the front line of public service. Leadership is at the core of the center's mission, and leadership stories are at the core of this show. This is the second show in a two-part series exploring the leadership stories of nine public sector executives, encompassing a wide range of disciplines, a diverse set of experiences, and a vast span of geographies. In this edition, I introduce you to five leaders whose missions and programs include improving government management, building a weather-ready nation, envisioning transportation and supply chain infrastructure for the future, and implementing enterprise risk management, ERM, to mitigate the potency of uncertainty by managing the realities of risk. Americans are increasingly dependent on timely, reliable, and accurate information on weather, water, and climate for the protection of life and property, as well as the enhancement of the nation's economy. In fact, a nationwide survey indicates that weather forecasts generate $35 billion in economic benefits to the United States households, about six times the cost spent on weather forecasting and research. As extreme weather becomes more common and damaging due to a confluence of physical and socioeconomic factors, getting the forecast right becomes even more important. Dr. Louis Uccellini, director of the National Weather Service, joined me to discuss the history and mission of his organization. So the, the history of the uh, Weather Service, the National Weather Service, is actually rooted in uh, decisions that were made after the Civil War and the expansion of our population westward um, into areas that were known to be, uh, let's put it this way, more challenging weather-wise. The, the stories were already out about blizzards and you know uh, tornadoes that people didn't really experience on the East Coast in the early history of the United States. So um, this, uh, the Signal Corps, which is part of the uh, Army, uh, actually got the first um, authorization to provide uh, uh, weather data and indications 
of what might come next. So that was done within the Signal Corps, and that was established in 1870. By 1891, a decision was made to relocate that function in a National Weather Bureau in the Department of Agriculture. In the 1940-41 time frame, President Roosevelt um, moved it to the Department of Commerce um, as it, still maintaining the mission of providing uh, weather, uh, water, and climate information for the protection of life and property and for the enhancement of the national economy. Dr. Uccellini points out that the National Weather Service is fundamentally an operational unit. We have the action verb in our mission statement to provide the data for weather, water, and climate, and to provide forecasts to actually predict the future state, which is a very unique aspect of a mission statement for a government agency. We um, really take seriously, and we're passionate about the protection of life and property. People expect the data and the forecast to be on time every time. So you have to have an infrastructure for that. And that's an incredible accomplishment in and of itself. We we deal with billions of observations a day. Uh, We make forecasts uh, out to uh, days, weeks, uh, months in advance, every day from the sun to the sea. You got to have that reliability built in as well. So that's basically the, the, you know, captures uh, our daily existence. So what does the director of the National Weather Service do? Dr. Louis Uccellini explains. So uh, from a leadership perspective, I emphasize how important, obviously, the uh, field structure is to making, uh, to allow us to accomplish our mission um, in what I believe is a very cost-effective manner. We have to ensure that we're all marching forward to attain the same goal, and we have a very important strategic goal of a built weather-ready nation, that people are ready, responsive, resilient. We're continually reminding the workforce that their job doesn't end with the forecast and warning. That It really involves that connection to decision-making, especially for public safety. So we're there to champion the strategic goal, the, the, the plans, the changes that have to be made. But we're also there to manage a, a $1.1 billion budget and to ensure that it's being spent as planned, Uh, that we meet the goals, uh, what that money was meant for, and that we're uh, indeed supporting the field structure every day. So every morning at 745, we review every system that we're responsible for. Yesterday's weather challenges and how impact-based decision support services were provided. If there are issues, uh, we want to be aware of those. My definition of leadership is that people will actually follow. (laughs) So... I make sure that uh, the, the leadership, not only for me personally, but from our whole team, is a collaborative effort, and that our whole team is, is marching in the same direction. Uh, we'll, we'll, we all uh, are rolling up our sleeves and making sure we're getting the job done that has to get done. Getting that job done presents some unique challenges. Once again, Dr. Louis Uccellini, director of the National Weather Service, outlined some of the challenges he faces. Well, um, at first, uh, when I, I got this position um, as the director of the Weather Service in February 2013, the challenge was, um, you know, we were coming off uh, uh, some budget irregularities, or uh, let's just uh, put it that way. We, so we had, we had an infrastructure from our budget, uh, our budget structure, our, um, our headquarters organization structure, which was not mapped into our budget categories at the time and a governance. How are we going to actually plan, 
you know, our budget, how are we going to plan uh, the activities, how are we going to prioritize, and then how are we going to execute that. But the biggest surprise uh, to me was just how fragile our infrastructure was. But when I stepped up and saw the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the nature and the status of the forecast offices out there, the leaky roofs, uh, landlords that were no longer interested in supporting the building, that there were things that we had to do out there, the, the HVACs needed to be replaced. I mean, you know, just some fundamental uh, stuff that you know doesn't necessarily make the headlines, uh, but you have to be able to house your workforce and house the infrastructure for making a forecast happen. And quite frankly, um, that was in really bad shape. Overcoming these challenges involves crafting a clear strategic vision that helps focus the organization and its people. So the. Um, the strategic vision um, for the National Weather Service uh, remains intact, uh, which is to build a weather-ready nation, where the, the communities are ready and responsive and therefore resilient to extreme weather, water, and climate events. In order to uh, build a weather-ready nation, we recognize that providing the weather, water, and climate information and and forecasts to the general public and to decision makers is not enough. What we have stated in our mission statement. This strategic plan is really, in in certain sense, directed at our workforce, that they have to evolve um, how they work and what they have to bring to the table every day in terms of physical science, and now an increasing understanding of social science and decision-making and understanding how our partners in the emergency management community at the federal, state, and local levels, especially at the local levels where most of these decisions are made, and how we then couch our products and services and work with them as a true partner. Basically, that's the crux of how the strategic plan is, is sort of directed at our workforce. It, it takes an infrastructure, it takes science and technology to make that work with greater accuracy and make the whole system work with more reliability because you got to be there on time all the time. Dr. Louis Uccellini recognized that in order to achieve his strategic vision for the National Weather Service, it needed to be reorganized. To build a weather-ready nation to realize our mission, I felt very strongly that we had to deal with the core issues of budget acquisition, budget management, program management, and ensuring that we were directing our resources to the right places of the organization, our workforce especially, that um, would allow us to meet the goals and to uh, meet our mission every day. And that came right back at the headquarters. We had 25 budget categories that nobody knew how they even got there, how they interplayed with each other. Two of those categories uh, was a local... Uh, warnings and forecasts and central forecast guidance. So two of those categories had the word forecast in it. Uh, it took 71% of the budget, had about almost 90% of the FTEs. Uh, there were folks um, you know, in the organization above us and up on the hill that thought those were all forecasters. That 70% of our budget was on forecast. And, but everything was in those, budget cate- those two budget categories. I, I use the expression everything but the kitchen sink. So the real lack of visibility of what was in there, but more importantly, there was a lot of confusion amongst the category. 
And during fiscal years, there would be money shifted from one to the other, which is not allowed. We needed to simplify the budget structure that mapped our functions. I, I defined the forecast process for you. Observations, central processing, analyzed forecast support as a total, with support being a link to, the, to a decision makers, and, and then dissemination. And then, so that's our forecast process. And then you've got to fix it, you've got to improve it, you've got to replace components, whatever. That's science and technology integration. And then you've got to house it facilities. So today we have six budget categories. I can tell you the priorities in each one. Um, I can tell you how we plan for the three-year budget cycle. What comes out of those plans from the appropriation is what drives then the action for the current fiscal year, what the priorities are, what the schedules are, what the budget allocations are within the, within the elements within that. It's all directed with requirements set by analyzed forecast support. Dr. Louis Uccellini, director of the National Weather Service, offers his advice to those thinking about a career in public service. My advice to the folks uh, who have that interest and have that passion for public service is follow your dream and, and where you want to take that. Uh, there's many aspects of public service, whether it's in the science arena, whether it's uh, direct delivery of day-to-day services, whether it's a combination of both. Uh, uh, there's, there's, there's so many aspects of public service. People develop a passion for what they do. I, I see folks in public service um, uh, have that same passion as I see in the meteorological community. Um, there are things that get in the way uh, of sustaining that passion at times. Um, you know, public service depends on uh, public budgets. And and with that, uh, people will always want to know that they're getting the value for their money that they're putting into that. And, and what people are working on is uh, uh, relevant or directly uh, uh, applicable to their needs. So you always, you always have that challenge. Uh, I feel like we're fortunate being in a weather service that we can show that on a day-to-day basis. And sometimes, um, you know, like I said, we, I can guarantee we won't make a perfect forecast. Sometimes they're less perfect than others. And, you know... But I assure folks, we are always assessing cases to learn from mistakes. I see that in other areas so, as well. So the fact is, um, I would just if you if you have a passion for public service, follow your dreams, and uh, and make it work. Stay tuned for more leadership stories when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org.
Welcome back to Leadership Stories, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. Most Americans may not think about the U.S. federal government every day, but when they need government services, they expect it to work. As technology, e-commerce, and customer needs have evolved, government institutions have some catching up to do. The U.S. federal government still operates many capabilities and processes established in the mid-20th century, if not earlier. Despite dramatic changes in technology, society, and the needs of the American people in the digital age. Margaret Weicker, Deputy Director for Management at the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, joined me on the Business of Government Hour to discuss the Trump administration's vision for modernizing the U.S. federal government to meet the mission, service, and stewardship realities of the 21st century. So that's a great question. Uh, The alphabet soup of Washington, (laughs) I think, confuses a lot of people. But the Office of Management and Budget is the primary focus of administration for the presidency across the executive branch. And that includes the president's budget, which is perhaps the best-known part of what OMB does, but it also includes policy objectives, regulatory agenda, as well as administration of back-office functions like finance, accounting, IT, HR, procurement. I lead the M side, so the management side of OMB, and that includes the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, where we just got a new administrator, Senate-confirmed administrator. Uh, we have the Office of Federal Financial Management, which is led by the federal controller, and we're looking to uh, fill that role, which is also a Senate-confirmed role. We have the Office of the Federal CIO, Suzette Kent, uh, and a team that focuses on technology and government. And last but not least, we have uh, two additional organizations. One is the U.S. Digital Service, which does the sort of IT firefighting for government. And then we also have the Office of Performance and Personnel Management, which focuses on performance policy, measurement in government, strategy, as well as all of the personnel and HR policy. Margaret Weicker, Deputy Director for Management at OMB, identifies what makes her job most challenging. So the biggest challenge that runs through all of the activities that I've looked at optimization across agencies, the thing I think I've seen the most uh, need for additional focus is functional silos. And what I mean by that is IT modernization, everyone knows, is a major priority in government. A lot of folks, though, didn't realize how interconnected The issues were around how do you actually find the financing for your IT modernization problems. People are another critical issue where IT modernization has run aground because we didn't have the right people with the right skills to meet the mission needs or we weren't able to move them around agilely enough. And so it's really the the integration across functions. Uh, Procurement is another thing. We spend one of our biggest line items in our contracting pool is people. So hiring people to fit very niche skills in government or having augmentation of skills, that's something that procurement brings to the table. How does her private sector experience help her navigate the government enterprise? Once again, Margaret Weicker, Deputy Director for Management, elaborates. So I think the results orientation and the reality that there is 
always a potential solution if you just keep looking, have been very helpful. So one of my observations about Washington, it's it's a, a city that's framed around the rule of law, which is a great thing, but it's also framed around how lawyers think. Mm-hmm. And lawyers aren't necessarily out-of-the-box thinkers. They're inherently in-the-box thinkers, which is good. You want your lawyers to be in-the-box thinkers. What you need leaders, though, in government is constantly ask questions about how might we achieve this same objective within the construct of existing law or within the construct of new legislation that we might propose. How do we bring new thinking to the table? How do we really internalize, see changes that are happening in the private sector and apply them to a world that isn't about profit and loss? It's about mission, service, and stewardship. Government work is about mission, service, stewardship, and transformation. So how is the Trump administration working to modernize and transform how government agencies operate in the 21st century? So when we started thinking about the vision for modernization in the 21st century, we started with a view of our customers and the citizens we're serving and the services we're trying to provide. And we looked at what are they expecting us to do? And do they think we're doing a good job? And trust in government is at an all-time low. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to look at the elements of that and get a fact base to say, what aren't we doing that the American people expect us to be doing? And we looked at specific functions. And we said, where do Americans think we're doing a good job? And where are we failing? And how might we address those things? And fundamentally, the places where we're failing relate to service delivery and relate to how we are able to move and change and adapt according to the different desires and, and policy objectives. And so what what The root causes underneath why we're not very adaptable is we effectively institutionalized how we do government Mm -hmm. around a business model that was about fighting the Cold War. And many of the actual vehicles that we use in government date to the 50s, 60s, 70s, where the paradigm was about a constant adversary and a relatively uh, stable environment in which you would operate. And so there weren't the notions of what the jobs are changing every few years. Many of the jobs we can't fill today, nobody could have conceived of even 10 years ago, let alone 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. How we think about acquisition in a world where we have online marketplaces that provide you real-time information about both prices of new activity or new Purchases as well as aftermarket for all of those same things. Our procurement policies effectively were trying to create fairness in a world without markets. In a world with markets and visible always on real-time global markets, you know, the notions of fairness are different. Same thing with equity in pay. In order to figure out what the market Um, fair pay for a specific role was. 60 years ago, there were all these processes put in place. Today, you go to Glassdoor, Mm -hmm. you Google it, you can figure out what a fair compensation package is. And so in that environment, there's a whole lot that the American people are expecting that would be different. 
and we need to meet those expectations. So in the president's management agenda, we actually outline 14 specific cross-agency priority goals that get into a fair amount of detail on each of the things that we think need to change, uh, the top three being IT modernization, data accountability and transparency, and people in the workforce. And under each one of those, we have a list of priorities. And if you want to go to performance.gov, you can actually find sort of chapter and verse with all of the detail around that at a very granular level where we update it quarterly, how we're tracking across government on those events. But IT modernization is, is certainly at the top of the list. And as I mentioned, the connections between IT, procurement, financial management, and people are critical success factors that we are adding into all of our IT modernization goals. So we're not just looking at systems. We're also looking at business systems. As Margaret Weicker, Deputy Director for Management at OMB, notes, IT modernization is one of the administration's top three priorities. She outlines for us the reforms being pursued in how government procures and manages its IT systems. So we started with the IT modernization plan at the beginning of the administration, which was a list of 52 very near-term activities that we needed to essentially just ensure a baseline for cybersecurity and basic IT hygiene. We completed all those on time before the requisite date. So that was kicked off in 2017 and completed by the end of 2018. Following on from that, a broader strategy uh, set that includes our cloud strategy, cloud migration, strategies around sharing quality services, strategies around data and how we think about data, how we think about data centers, as well as a number of other vehicles that we've put in place to help execute on this, things like the Centers of Excellence, things like the Technology Modernization Fund, and probably more important, managing Government Technology Act facilities around getting working capital funds up and running. There's still some technical fixes needed to get more agencies able to take advantage of that. But those are things that we've been running down with a goal to really ensuring that we're well positioned to pursue IT modernization. The Technology Modernization Fund is another way to ensure that the federal government transforms how it does IT. Once again, here's Margaret Weikert, Deputy Director for Management at OMB, on the project associated with the Technology Modernization Fund. Uh, So this was a great uh, opportunity to showcase ways of work and the type of projects that may be difficult to get funded. More importantly, however, It created a toll gate process that allows a leading group of people to weigh in before projects start to help dimensionalize those projects and actually componentize them so they have a higher likelihood of succeeding. And the fiscal year funding of $100 million followed by $25 million in uh, 2019 has enabled us to fund projects at USDA, at HUD, at GSA, and a few other uh, locations that are really taking root. One of the earliest projects was the Farmers.gov project. Uh, USDA it was well known as one of the laggards in terms of the age of the technology and lack of sophistication. And they have gone an incredible way towards modernizing their core infrastructure and becoming much more service-oriented to support farmers, producers, and ranchers. 
across the country. As we modernize IT systems, there's another area that agencies are focusing on, and that is tapping the vast amount of data that is available to them and use that data as a strategic asset to drive more effective government and be more transparent. Margaret Weicker, Deputy Director for Management at OMB, gives us an update on this cross-agency priority goal, making data a strategic asset. So you'll uh, be pleased to know that we announced the data strategy about a month ago, I think, and uh, it included a broad vision for what we need to do in government around data, and it includes the starting point around data governance and uh Coincidentally, the timing around the establishment of Chief Data Officers Council has just come online. We've just passed the deadline for designation of participants in that council, and we're working to stand that up. Uh, So governance is a key element around data, and not only will the council facilitate activities across agencies, but I think most people in figuring out who they want to designate as chief data officers have realized that the question of data needs to include many people within an agency from the financial um, management office, from the personnel office, from the procurement office, as well as from the statistical and evidence perspective, and then definitely in the IT realm data and data structure and how we actually tag data, the hygiene of data, metadata, is an important part of the IT investments we need to make. So that's another part of the strategy. And it's only when you've got those in place that you can really go to the place everybody wants to go, which is around using the data, whether it's through AI um, or advanced analytics, and then ultimately to commercialization of data. So we have a lot of investment in, in basically structuring our data and ensuring that it's well positioned to both do the, the, the work we need it to do for us in the 21st century, but also to commercialize it and make it available more broadly. Stay tuned for more leadership stories when a special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to Leadership Stories, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. Federal agencies are hardly immune to the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and uncertainty. Each day, federal agency leaders face risks associated with fulfilling their respective program missions, and yet today's headlines present stories of cyber hacks, abuse of power, 
extravagant spending, and a host of other risk management failures. In some cases, if leaders had taken the time to foresee and mitigate potential risks, many of these failures could have been avoided or at least had less of an impact. It is a leadership imperative for government executives to mitigate the potency of uncertainty by managing the realities of risk. Employing an enterprise risk management ERM process can assist leaders in doing just that. The U.S. Internal Revenue Service, the IRS, has sought to do just that and developed an effective enterprise approach to identifying, measuring, and assessing risks and developing effective policy responses, pursuing enterprise risk management as an approach. Here's Tom Brandt, Chief Risk Officer at IRS. The, the Chief Risk Officer position at IRS is, is probably still relatively new. It was established in 2013 following kind of a major crisis that we had at the agency. And the intention was to designate the CRO as kind of a new position at the IRS to help leadership get ahead of um, other potential problems. And I think to try to provide some capabilities across the organization to identify where other types of um, risks might be percolating up and giving, I think, additional insight or early insight. Uh, for the commissioner and the deputy commissioners in particular uh, to know about those and really have an opportunity to do something about them. Um, and along with the establishment of the chief risk officer position, we also then implemented enterprise risk management at the IRS. And the intention there was to, again, provide the entire IRS with capabilities for identifying sort of, you know, where things could go wrong, um, you know, what steps we needed to put in place to prevent uh, those events from happening, and then just, again, giving us greater awareness of a full range of risks that the IRS, given its mission, faces on a daily basis. Tom Brandt, chief risk officer at IRS, explains his specific responsibilities and duties. So I'd say the primary responsibility when the position was set up was to establish and then execute kind of this common framework for how we capture, report, and address risks um, to the IRS. I think important uh, along with that is trying to bring transparency to sort of some of those emerging problems and issues through throughout the organization and give us, again, that capability to respond to and address risks before they end up having a negative impact on on the IRS. Um, and in addition to that, I, you know, I also serve in kind of a consulting capacity to the leadership team and to others within the IRS who are perhaps experiencing, you know, a challenge or an issue where they're encountering, you know, different types of risks and maybe, you know, in the, in the process of making some decisions and really wanting to make sure they have a full understanding of the different types of risks that might be associated with that decision, who else they might need to engage um, to help them with that. And I think, again, just maybe getting a better overall understanding of whether or not there might be other parts of the IRS impacted as well um, by those decisions and perhaps any associated risks. Managing risk across the IRS enterprise is fraught with some significant challenges. Once again, here's Tom Brandt on those challenges. The major challenges, of course, are finding time, you know, getting everybody to find time to set aside to be really deliberately thinking through and focusing on risk because we're all busy. Um, and in many times we're dealing kind of with what's right in front of us. So I think trying to make time to um, have the leadership team think about those things that could happen, not necessarily the things that are happening. I think that can be a bit of a challenge. But given, you know, some of the issues that we went through with the IRS back in 2013 and 2014, I think uh, the team recognized the importance of really setting aside that time to really plan for and prepare and, and try to get ahead of other potential uh, problems or, or issues. 
I think something else, too, is that there's a natural tendency, I think, for most people in most organizations of, you know, not necessarily wanting to share perhaps bad news. Um, and so trying to create that environment where people feel comfortable pointing out problems and raising concerns in a way that, you know, everybody feels comfortable and that we're actually appreciative of knowing about that and hearing about that while there's still time to do something about it uh, is an area that we've, you know, I think focused a lot of attention. And just having that awareness can perhaps give the leadership team or others, you know, some insight or ability if there's other connections that we need to bring in or other parties that need to be involved that we're doing that sooner rather than later. What is risk and why is it so often viewed in negative terms? The IRS chief risk officer, Tom Brandt, explains. I think risk just in itself is uncertainty, not knowing how something is going to turn out. Um, and we take risk every day, you know, making our decisions even on how we're going to commute to work. We don't necessarily know unless we've spent taking the time to go look at the apps or we're using, you know, listening to the news carefully. So it's kind of just that uncertainty of how things are going to progress. But then, you know, risk management is really what are those uh, tools and those techniques and the approaches that you can take to actually better understand what are the potential risks that could occur, and then kind of what are the methods and steps that you can take to either minimize um, the impact of that risk uh, if it did occur or even figuring out alternatives. Um, I think that question you had around why is risk often viewed in such negative terms as kind of a factor of the environment that we operate in. And, you know, in the federal sector in particular and in the public sector overall, uh, it's just a, a, a nature of the positions we hold that when something goes wrong, it gets a lot of attention. Um, and it gets a lot of attention very quickly. So, you know, oftentimes what we've seen across government and here in, in D.C. is that when, you know, something does go wrong, there's a, you know, rapid, you know, jump to figure out, point fingers. We want to accomplish a certain thing by a certain time frame. Are we carefully monitoring if things are going off course so that we can then take steps to get ourselves back on course before we've gone so far down the road that... You know, we've got a lot of sunk cost and and we haven't got much to show for it. And then that's what creates kind of, I think, some of that negative, you know, reaction around, well, government operations overall. Tom Brandt from the IRS tells us more about enterprise risk management and how it differs from traditional risk management. Well, I think the traditional approach to risk management in government has always done that. I think across all of our agencies, we've always, I think, taken time to understand risk to our functions and risks to our specific operations. And, you know, you think across most agencies, you know, they've been addressing kind of cyber risk for a long period of time. And we've, across government, and you know, it's been a high focus, for example, for GAO around um, focusing on addressing different types of fraud risk. And then when we look at our specific programs, how do we, you know, I think, identify and address risk in those program areas, right? But enterprise risk is taking that to a higher level and looking across the entire organization and risks across the organization and then considering those in relationship to the overall mission of the agency and the ability of the organization to achieve its goals overall. And I think the key distinction then is that as we're identifying those risks and thinking through our risk responses, we are carefully assessing the impact of the agency overall. Um, I think some of the challenges sometimes with functional risk management is that some of the risk responses to those types of uh, events actually can end up creating additional risk for other parts of the organization because they're not necessarily being done with that wholesale view of the entire organization. 
Tom Brandt, Chief Risk Officer at IRS, outlines the agency's ERM strategic framework and its risk assessment process. So we do have a very well-established process where, you know, six years into our program at the IRS, we do conduct an annual enterprise risk assessment where um, we engage with every part of the IRS to review, you know, risks across all of the units and look at sort of what's happening in the external environment. We look at um, findings from our auditors. Um, and then certainly input from employees, managers, and, and the leadership team and kind of, um, you know, that whole risk ecosystem or risk environment. And, and so we'll, we'll certainly consider our existing risk and whether there are new risks, um, you know, that are emerging that we need to, you know, begin putting on our radar. Uh, but to support all of that, we have an executive risk committee in place at the IRS, uh, which I chair along with our two deputy commissioners. And then we've got other executives who serve in rotational capacity on that. Every single unit at the IRS also has an ERM sort of champion or liaison, um, and most of those positions are collateral duty, but in some of our larger units, those are full-time, but those kind of are our designated champions for ERM in, in each unit. They get together regularly, in fact, monthly uh, to, you know, again, stay current on, on what's happening across the IRS to discuss kind of our risk responses, risk strategies, um, but they also, you know, comprise our our risk working group. The key is then what are you doing in terms of, you know, putting in place risk response strategies and then how are you monitoring that throughout the course of the year? How has the IRS used enterprise risk management to inform its strategic planning efforts and day-to-day operations? Once again, here's Tom Brandt, IRS chief risk officer. So certainly the top risks to the IRS were an input into the development of the 2018 through 2022 strategic plan at the IRS. And I think as that plan was being put together, I think one of the key considerations was what initiatives can the IRS undertake to help improve our mission delivery, to help improve service to customers, to help enhance kind of the way we approach enforcement, our use of data analytics, and how we can make the organization more efficient. You know, all of those those kind of objectives, uh, part of the the planning that went into that was thinking through how as we're setting those up or deciding our, on our initiatives, are we also at the same time going to be able to try and minimize uh, the likelihood or potential for, for risks associated um, with those events. When we sort of switch, though, over to sort of the day-to-day uh, operations and how does that get built into, you know, what we're doing on, a, on an everyday basis, I think there the, the key element is incorporating the consideration of risk into critical decision-making and making sure that we're attuned to a broader view of risks and that we've engaged, you know, with other parts of the organization that may be affected by our risks. So I think that consideration of risk and critical decision-making is how we've kind of also integrated ERM into the day-to-day sort of operations of the agency itself. What are some of the benefits of pursuing ERM within the IRS? Tom Brandt explains. Well, I think to start with here, it's important to also mention and be clear that, you know, implementing ERM is not going to guarantee that no risk is going to manifest or that there's not going to be another crisis uh, because ERM itself is not about eliminating risk altogether. And there is really no ability for any organization to provide 100% assurance that something bad won't happen. I mean, the only way really to eliminate risk is to get out of the business of whatever it is you're doing. But, you know, that's not really feasible uh, or reasonable for us. Um, But the benefits of ERM uh, overall is it does, I think, enable and facilitate increased awareness and understanding of of risks, again, associated with the key decisions that you're making. For us, 
an important factor as, as well was broadening our understanding and our view of risks. Uh, ERM as well, I think, can help agencies in how they're you know, making choices and, and resource allocation. You can kind of understand where you may have the most significant impact or kind of, again, those areas that could compromise the ability of the agency to perform or uh, to achieve its objectives and identifying, in a, and again, in, a, in an era of constrained resources, if you've got an additional dollar to spend, you know, where might you apply that because it is either going to help you improve your likelihood of, you know, mission success or um, it's going to minimize the likelihood that something bad could happen for the organization or for the people we serve. Stay tuned for more leadership stories when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery, by Yan Yan Ang, presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Welcome back to Leadership Stories, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. The Washington Metro Area Transit Authority, WMATA, runs the Washington, D.C. metro system, a powerful economic engine for the national capital region, connecting residents in the state of Maryland, the Commonwealth of Virginia, and the District of Columbia to jobs, housing, entertainment, and schools, while providing transit service for close to 20 million visitors each year. By focusing resources on rebuilding, reforming, and improving Metro, this transit system can adapt and grow to meet the needs of this dynamic region. And information technology and innovation are integral to making this happen. Here's Al Short, Chief Information Officer at WMATA. Metro is was formed in 1967 by a, a tri-jurisdictional compact and an act of Congress. And so starting in 1967, we started to work on putting together the railroad and then eventually in the, in the in early 70s, we took on some of the bus transit agencies that are in the metro area and that started to form the nucleus of, of what became metro today. Today, we are about 1,500 buses, 118 miles of rail uh, across the uh, area. We support the entire DMV area, about a million trips a day between our various modes of transportation, which includes bus and rail, but also metro transit, which is our paratransit mm-hmm. uh, operation associated with metro. The, the IT department for metro is part of what is known as inter- internal business operations. And so I report to an, e- an EVP who reports to the GM, and so I meet with the GM on a regular basis as, as part of our initiatives from an IT perspective. But my organization is responsible for everything from fiber optic right-of-ways along the railroad to your standard ERP or enterprise resource planning sorts of applications associated with finance and procurement and HR to the public-facing website. Mm-hmm. Uh, those of you in the metro area would know Smart Trip and Smart Benefits associated with our transit benefit sort of applications, the Smart Trip card, the metro card that you use to get on and off of buses and rail to the railroad operations control system, which is associated with actually running the, the, the running rail and, and the system associated with 
the trains. So it's a, a gamut of applications. Uh, it's a 24 by 7 operation uh, made up of about uh, 600 plus in professionals that are broken between contractors and uh, full-time employees. Al Short, CIO at the Washington Metro Area Transit Authority, WMATA, discusses the challenges he faces in his leadership role. Well, I think that, first of all, uh, the, just the breadth and scope of what we do from an IT perspective. So one of the things that we really tried to work on is put together a management team that focuses in on the particular areas of, of need from a, a WMATA perspective. So infrastructure and operations is, is a key area for us, and those are the folks that are out there uh, supporting railroad operations. For an example, we're out there on the railroad inspecting every phone every 800 feet along the railroad, all 118 miles. We inspect every phone twice a year to make sure that they're operational and, and associated with that. So infrastructure and operations merge together the networking, networking team and the data center operations team to bring together those teams together. Uh, cybersecurity is another major focus of the authority. We really want to see become a center of excellence. And so that was a, a big key area from my perspective to when I went into the marketplace to find a new CISO for, for the authority. I have a very focused and uh, definitive individual in that spot who's really brought a lot of uh, rigor to the team, redefined the entire organization, and put together a whole roadmap on how we're going to move forward from a cybersecurity perspective. And then, not certainly not last but not least, is our application side of the house. We have all these different applications we support. I mentioned some of them before, but it also includes things like mobile applications, the website. We do internal operational technologies for uh, what we call the Generalized Ordered Track Rights Systems, or GOATERS. If you think about our window of opportunity for our staff to go out on the railroad and do work associated with repairing the systems and, and the uh, track beds, you know, railroad ties, whatever it might be, they have to reserve time so that we can make sure that the operations control center has gotten the trains cleared and managed and that sort of thing. Information technology is critical to the success of the Washington Metro Area Transit Authority, WMATA, to that end, Al Short, its CIO, outlines IT priorities and his strategic vision for IT at Metro. So I happen to have, have brought a, a page out of my strategic plan with me just so I could refer to it. Mm. But I think from our perspective, you know, the, the GM came in a few years ago and his focus was, first of all, on safety. Mm. And then once we got through safety and, and, and the, the safe track effort, we really tried to go back and, and repair a lot of the, the infrastructure that, that needed uh, addressing. Uh, then he started to move toward this idea of back to good. And, and really that's about investing in the infrastructure and, and, and in the systems to, to bring us back to what we are, you know, the area would perceive us as a good provider of transit services. And so from an IT perspective, you know, we're looking at it from the standpoint of what we need to do from an infrastructure perspective to from a technology perspective where we need to go to refresh, first of all, our technology stack mm -hmm. as we start to, you know, sort of reinvesting in, in the, the hardware and the, and the software applications. I don't know, our existing enterprise resource planning software ERP stack is going to be end of life in the mid 
mid-20s. As you can imagine, for an organization of our size, 12,000 employees, 17,000 employees and contractors in total, that's a big lift. You know, millions of dollars in revenue that have to be managed and billions of dollars in procurements on a regular basis. And so we really need to establish an infrastructure to be able to process that data at the edge as appropriate, uh, edge intelligence, bring that in and and work towards supporting what we're trying to do from a maintenance perspective, really going to a reliability-centered maintenance sort of program, or RCMP, where you're... uh, based off of the performance and the characteristics of, of how that particular application or, or, excuse me, that particular piece of technology is doing, deciding what kind of maintenance. From the role IT and innovation plays in realizing the transit system for the 21st century, we move to efforts underway to transform how ports operate. The port of Rotterdam is the largest port in Europe. From all indications, the port is preparing for the future today focusing on safety, efficiency, and sustainability. To do this successfully, the port is developing its digital twin, providing real-time situational awareness of all things, static, moving, human-driven, or autonomous, pulling together all the geographic, sensor, and real-time information to provide port personnel a complete and current view of all its activities. Erwin Rademacher, program manager with the Port of Rotterdam Authority, explains. Well, there are, there are different triggers. Um, one of them is that the technology itself evolved. Um, so if, if you look, for instance, at the IoT domain, uh, the cost of sensors, the, the, the easy way of connecting things these days, you know, using mobile devices and mobile network platforms, um, triggers it. So, you know, we, we are constantly looking at, at new technologies uh, to apply, uh, even for, um, you know, mission-critical uh, systems like the hydromedio system that we just replaced with, with, with the IBM uh, uh, Watson IT platform. So looking at new technologies will inspire you and, um, and, and will, you know, open up new opportunities for the future. That's one thing. From the other side, we if you look at our, our tenants in the port, like terminals, they are way more automated than we are as, as a port authority. If you look at uh, the most um, most um, automated terminal in the world, the RWG terminal in Rotterdam. So that's Rotterdam World Gateway Terminal on the far end of the Mass Fluctor 2. You won't see anyone on the terminal no more. It's fully, fully automated. So the unloading and loading of containers on on vessels is completely automated. The only um, manual or human interference is that um, a crane operator is remotely controlling multiple cranes at the same time. That's the only thing. But that will disappear in the future as well. So, um, you know, and the request for um, adequate, uh, authoritative and uh, very accurate information increases as well. With these, with with the tenants, you know, getting more and more uh, automated um, and digitized, we as a port uh, um, have to... to you know, to provide more and more information. So it's um, it's technology-driven and it's uh, market request 
uh, driven, so to speak, from our tenant side. The demand on more integrated, real-time and um, uh, seamless provided information will on, only uh, uh, increase. And hence to that, we, we developed this vision mm-hmm. of the digital twin. Um, it's, it's the digital representation of, of, of our port in which all uh, objects, you know, will carry the information needed uh, to communicate with other objects in the future. Erwin Rademacher, program manager at the Port of Rotterdam, outlines the strategic vision and objectives of the port's total digitalization transformation effort. Yeah, so in the digital twin, uh, imagine that we, we can predict more and more precise in the future the water depth. Um, and the water depth in a port consists of the, the water bottom, so the dredging area, the, the dredging depth, and the, and the water height. Uh, and in Rotterdam, you know, we have at, at, the, at the sea side, we have a, um, a tide of, you know, one to two meters. So imagine a, a ship. So if we can provide, you know, the, the, the exact, you know, on a centimeter uh, base in the future, in, in the uh, we can we can predict like twenty se- uh, no uh, seventy two hours in ahead the exact uh, water depth in any place in the port. Imagine you know you are the owner of a container vessel and you want to load it for Rotterdam. You know if if you don't if we don't provide this most accurate information, a captain of that ship will say, all right, I will, I will take in consideration the safety margin of, let's say, one and a half meter, because I don't know the depth there, but I, I, will, I know that the depth is like 17 or 18 meters or 20 meters, but still I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take into consideration uh, a safety margin. Uh, the, the, the term for that is under keel clearance. Um, you know, and imagine that in the future we would provide, you know, exact information on centimeters level. He can maybe decrease that safety margin and the kill clearance to 30 centimeter. That means that he would have one meter and 20 more cargo on board. That means on a ship of 400 meters of length and 60 meters of width, that's a lot of, that are a lot of iPhones. And uh, in that way, you know, we are contributing uh, to a more sustainable world as well, because more cargo on a ship, more efficient uh, cargo transportation uh, means less ships, and less ships means less pollution. I hope you've enjoyed the leadership stories of five public servants profiled on today's show. Be sure to join me next week for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. Each week on the Business of Government Hour, government executives and thought leaders join host Michael Keegan for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. These individuals are truly changing the way government does business. So join them each week on the Business of Government Hour. Find out how the business of government isn't business as usual. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on the Federal News Network.